Britain, Britain, Britain. There's an old saying in Britain, British is best. But why is it best? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because of those little party hats we get each year in a Christmas crackers. All these secrets and many more will be shared with you in this rad and totally bodacious episode of Bizarre Laws of the UK with your most excellent host, the Auntie Lord. Christmas Day. The perfect chance to sit around the table with your close friends and family and enjoy a festive dinner, endless games of Monopoly, and arguments over who has the last remaining roast potato. You can consider yourself lucky. For centuries, such an extravagant festivity could have landed you in hot water. Sumptuary laws have been around for centuries. In ancient Rome in 215 BC, Sumptuary laws stipulated the number of guests permitted at entertainment and forbade the consumption of various foods. Such laws are generally imposed to regulate the consumption and restrain luxury and extravagance. They have also been used to control the import of certain goods, for example cotton. In the old days, they were used as a mechanism to further reinforce the class divides in society. Sumptuary laws existed in England from the 12th to the 18th century. Over time, more people had disposable income and could afford more luxury items. This had the effect of flattening the different social classes. Whilst, yes, there was a growing problem with obesity with the rich, the sumptuary laws weren't brought in to address that. They were enforced to restrict the power and luxuries available to those with growing access to wealth. This was to prevent people from emulating the lifestyle of their superiors by legislating against their new luxurious standards of living. Clothing, Food, drink, and furniture represented the various social classes, so these tended to be the focus of the sumptuary laws. In 1309, King Edward I made a proclamation against the outrageous and excessive multitude of meats and dishes which the great men of the kingdom had used and still used in their castle. In 1336, King Edward III attempted to legislate against luxurious living by passing the Sumptuary Act to address the excessive and over many sorts of costly meats which the people of this realm have used. Bizarrely, it's enacted that no man should eat or cause to be served more than two courses per meal, except during Christmas, when three courses may be served. To cheat the system, people were trying to have soup as an extra course and claiming it was a sauce to accompany their food like ketchup or horseradish. The 1336 Act contained a provision to prevent this. Common punishments for breaking the sumptuary laws were the confiscation of the item and a fine. It remained on the statute books for 520 years until it was repealed in 1856. Christmas just doesn't feel like Christmas without a Christmas pudding smeared with lavish helpings of rum and brandy butter and not forgetting, of course, the Christmas crackers with their novelty plastic toys that no one actually wants and a large box of mince pies. I remember the very first mince pies I made for the local church fair. No one bothered going back for seconds. Shame, I don't know why, and the mince beef I used from the local butcher was rather expensive. This is a tricky one. There was a law of sorts that would have prohibited the consumption of mince pies on Christmas Day, although it appears this was only a prohibited activity on Christmas Day in 1644. The reality was that this was a mandated day of fasting. The Cambridge Dictionary definition for fasting is to 
eat no food for a period of time. So it wasn't just mince pies, but all sorts of food that were forbidden on that date. To better understand this, we must look at what was happening at the time. England was on the verge of civil war, and Oliver Cromwell was shortly to take the helm with his Puritan ideology. During this time, gluttony was considered one of the seven deadly sins. In an attempt to purge these excesses of food and poor behaviour from the English, primarily Christian population, on the 24th of August 1642, the Puritans passed an ordinance for the better observation of the monthly fast. This ordinance required that the last Wednesday of each month was a day of fasting to remember Christ and to repent for our sins. This didn't become an issue until two years later, when Christmas Day in 1644 fell on a Wednesday. Surely they didn't expect people not to celebrate Christmas Day. Well, yes, they certainly did. And after requests were made to waive the fast on that Christmas Day of 1644, Parliament's response on the 19th of December was to issue another ordinance, the ordinance to observe the monthly fast, especially on the day which heretofore was called the Feast of the Nativity of Our Saviour. The following was a public notice to be given for observation of monthly fast till further order, and on the next day being Christmas Day in particular. Whereas some doubts have been raised whether the next fast shall be celebrated because it falleth on the day which heretofore was usually called the Feast of the Nativity of Our Saviour, the Lords and Commons in Parliament assembled do order and ordain that public notice be given that the fast appointed to be kept on the last Wednesday in every month ought to be observed until it be otherwise ordered by both Houses of Parliament, and that this day in particular is to be kept with the more solemn humiliation, because it may call to remembrance our sins and the sins of our forefathers who have turned this feast, pretending the memory of Christ, into an extreme forgetfulness of him, by giving liberty to carnal and sensual delights, being contrary to the life which Christ himself led here upon earth, and to the spiritual life of Christ in our souls for the sanctifying and saving, whereof Christ was pleased both to take a humane life and to lay it down again. And so, Christmas Day in 1644 was legally ordained to be a mandatory day of fasting. Mince pies weren't banned, but were frowned upon as a day was set aside for fasting. Then again, King Charles I refused to provide royal assent to any laws passed by Parliament at that time, so technically, the law wasn't a law in the first place. Parliament may have found people guilty of such an offence, but in theory, the law could not find them guilty. Nowadays, if we fancy a quick bite to eat, we can pop to the local corner shop to buy a loaf of bread, and it even comes pre-sliced. They say there's nothing better than sliced bread, but this hasn't always been the case. There are some bakers who have been unscrupulous, greedy and deceitful, and because of them, we get the saying, a baker's dozen. Years ago, bread used to be eaten with every meal. In fact, for many, bread was the meal, along with ale. Even children drank weak ale because it was deemed less contaminated than water at the time. These two items were such an integral part of every household that they had to be regulated to ensure fairness. In 1266, King Henry III 
passed a law that regulated the price of a loaf of bread and a quantity of ale in relation to the current price of wheat. This assays of bread and ale, it was our first law to regulate the production and sale of food. As the price of bread was fixed to the cost of corn, what would happen is that whenever the price of corn rose, the size of the loaf purchased would reduce. The government set the prices annually on the feast of St. Michael on the 29th of September. Still, if the price of corn varied significantly, the government would then revisit the prices throughout the year. There were punishments for those unscrupulous bakers who sought to deceive the public by giving them less than the required amounts. In medieval times, when the common thinking was for the punishment to fit the crime, with some pretty horrific examples, you'd expect the offending baker to be shoved into his bread oven. However, that wasn't the case, and these punishments for more for public humiliation, so that everyone knew just how deceitful that baker was. Most likely, after being publicly humiliated, they would have had to move to a different county where their deceit was unknown. The usual punishment for those caught cheating their customers was a heavy fine for the first few times. If the baker didn't change their deceitful ways, repeat offences would be punished with a visit to the pillory or to jail, swiftly followed by them being banned from being a baker. The public pillory was a very humiliating punishment. It was known as a stretch neck. The offender's head would be locked into position and their hands would be locked into holes on either side to prevent them from moving. Often, the head would also be shaven. Passing members of the public would see their deceitful baker in the village pillory and would be able to throw rotten food or other offensive items at the baker. The penalties for deceitful bakers in the City of London were far more severe. The offending bakers would have been dragged around crowded streets on a hurdle for the first offence. For the second transgression, they were dragged through the streets on a hurdle in the pillory, where they would be locked in it for an hour. For a third offence, the baker would then be dragged through the streets on a hurdle, his baker's oven would be broken up and he would be forced to give up baking altogether. In any case, there would have been little chance that he would be able to continue baking or conduct any business within the City of London after that time. The constant anxiety caused by the possible accusations of wrongdoing and the fear of being punished caused many bakers to throw in extra bread when sold. This is where the term a baker's dozen is believed to have originated. For example, if a dozen loaves were ordered, the baker would throw in extra bread to ensure that any inadvertent shortfall in weight was made up. Even with the best intentions, you can see why upright bakers would have been so paranoid. If you've ever baked anything in the oven, then you know just how many variables there are that can affect the finished results. So it's no wonder they provided this extra piece of bread, sometimes known as the vantage loaf or inbred. Despite all these punishments, some medieval bakers were very creative in their approach to baking. A known technique was to deceive examiners in the city of London by keeping the full weight loaves on the shelves and swapping those with lower weight loaves out of sight of the customer. Another technique was to conceal coins or lead weights in the loaf whilst it was being weighed for customers. They would then quickly be squirreled away before the loaf was handed over. National archive records from the 16th century show that some bakers were accused of soaking stale bread and mixing it with new dough to make up loaves of poor quality, to the greatest abuse and scandal of their mystery and the wrong of his majesty's subjects. 
it became commonplace for unscrupulous bakers to mix sawdust and sand into the baking flour to reduce the cost of production. There is other evidence of widespread abuse at the baker's oven. Many households didn't have their own ovens for baking, so it was common practice for housewives to take their dough to a public bakehouse and pay a small fee for their loaf being baked in the residual heat of the baker's oven. On one such occasion in 1327, a creative but deceitful baker's assistant would spend his day reaching up through the oven boards and pulling off pieces of dough from each customer's loaf. This would then be baked on and sold to customers, many of whom were undoubtedly the unwitting providers of the dough. This baker was discovered and placed in the local pillory with slabs of dough hung around his neck. A record from 1360 shows that a baker in Suffolk named John Baker, which is very appropriate, was fined 24 pence and placed in the pillory for breaking this assize of bread and ale. The bread assize ended in 1815 when the weight of a loaf of bread was fixed by statute. It wasn't just bread, not forgetting that the other staple of most medieval households was ale, the assize also regulated the price of the gallon of ale according to the cost of wheat, barley and oats. National Archive records from the Doomsday Book show that as far back as the reign of Edward the Confessor, brewers of bad ale in the city of Chester, by way of punishment, were forced to stand in the tumbril or dung cart. The Assize of Bread and Ale was finally repealed in 1863. There was a time when you could pay your rent with just horseshoes and some nails, and this secured your land for the following year. I once tried this with my old landlord. He wasn't very happy with the arrangement. He threw me out and changed the locks. A rather unusual but typically British ceremony occurs once a year between late October and early November. This is known as the Quit Rent Ceremony, where the City of London pays rent to the Crown for pieces of land. The ceremony dates back to 1211 and amusingly, no one knows the exact location of the land anymore. A quit rent is a process of avoiding the payment of money by offering something of alternative value, although money can still be exchanged. Except for the royal coronation, the quit rent ceremony is the oldest legal ceremony in England. It occurs annually between St Michael's Day on the 11th of October and St Martin's Day on the 11th of November. The ceremony happens at the Royal Courts of Justice on the Strand in London. It is presided over by the Queen's Remembrancer. This is the oldest judicial position held in England. King Henry II created the role in 1154 to keep a record of all the money owed to the Crown. The purpose of the Queen's Remembrancer was to put the King in remembrance of all things owing to the King. Until 1882, they sat in the Court of Exchequer. After the Court was abolished, the Remembrancer retained all their previous ceremonial duties. These are set out in the Queen's Remembrancers Act. 1859 and the Sheriff's Act 1887. The Queen's Remembrancer also has custody of the Great Seal of the Exchequer, which is still used on some important state documents. As a member of the judiciary, the Queen's Remembrancer still wears a full-bottom judicial wig with a black tricorn hat. They sit at a table covered in a chequered cloth. This is where the Court of Exchequer gets its name. During medieval times, the chequered squares on the cloth were used to help keep tally of rent paid. Every year, the Corporation of the City of London will pay rent for the land they have been renting from the Crown for over 800 years. The oldest piece of land dates back to 1211, four years before the signing of the Magna Carta, 
This land is known as the Moors. All we now know is that it is near Bridgenorth in Shropshire. Typically, rental on the land increases over time. However, even though this land has been rented for hundreds of years, the amount of rent owed to the Crown has not changed. From historical records, we know that from the very beginning of this rent, the 180 acres of land were occupied by Nicholas de Moors. He had to pay rent consisting of two knives, one blunt and one sharp. Over the years, the tenancy had passed to the City of London and now they rent it each year from the Crown. It's become custom each year for the city to present the Queen's Remembrancer with a blunt billhook and a sharpened axe. The billhook is first tested by attempting to cut through a hazel stick. The billhook must be blunt enough to not cut through the stick, but to leave only a slight mark. This mark represents the payment of the rent. Next, the sharpened axe is tested. It must be sharp enough to cut the stick into two pieces. One piece of the stick is given to each party as a receipt for the payment. The Queen's Remembrancer will then remark, Good service. The second quit rent is paid for a piece of land that's been rented since 1235. This is the forge in Tweezers Alley, just south of St. Clement Danes, near the Strand in London. The land has been rented since 1235, during the reign of King Henry III, most likely by a local blacksmith named Walter Lebrun. He had set up his blacksmith's forge near the tilting or the jousting grounds of the Knights Templar. The City of London eventually took over the tenancy. In return for the rent of the land, the city must continue to pay each year with 6 horseshoe and 61 horseshoe nails. This rent has never changed. The horseshoes date back to 1361 and have been reused over the centuries. After receiving the payments, the same shoes and nails are then loaned back to the City of London for the use the following year. The horseshoes and nails must all be individually counted and caught in front of the Queen's Remembrancer. Once satisfied, the Queen's Remembrancer will pronounce Good service! And the ceremony concludes. A third quit rent ceremony is held annually, where the City of London pays the Crown for the town of Southwark. This rent dates back to 1327, when King Edward III granted the city its fourth oldest royal charter, to require the town and borough of Southwark in return for an annual payment of £11. King Edward VI retained this rent in 1550 charter to the city. This ceremony can take place at various locations. As with the first two quit rent ceremonies, the Queen's Remembrancer must be in attendance dressed in full regalia. During the ceremony, the rent is placed onto the chequered exchequer cloth. Once the Queen's Remembrancer receives the payments to quit the rent, they pronounce good service, concluding the ceremony for another year. This ceremony is still permitted by law as enacted by the Administration of Justice Act 1977. Looking further afield, the Channel Island of Sark, just three miles long and half a mile wide, must continue to pay an annual rent of £1.79 to the Crown to renew its lease. And so, that brings this week's episode to an end. I do hope you've enjoyed your flight. I was going to sing you a little ditty to end this episode, but sadly, the show producers took out an injunction against me after they discovered me late one night in their rose garden wearing fishnet stockings and red stilettos, serenading their Greek goddess statues. Ah well. Until next time, goodbye! 
Thank you for listening to Bizarre Laws of the UK podcast. If you've loved this episode, then please take a screenshot on your phone and post it to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever you like to post. Be sure to tag me and let me know why you like this episode and what you'd like to hear more about in the future. That'll help me to know what to create for you.